Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Dr. Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and today I am joined by Dr. Alan Lichtman as we discuss his new forthcoming book, no, not on impeaching Trump, but on potentially a more radical claim, uh, and the book is entitled Repeal the Second Amendment, The Case for a Safer America. Dr. Lichtman, thank you so much for being on The Politics Guys. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Would you begin by introducing yourself to our listeners? I am a distinguished professor of history at American University in Washington, D.C. I specialize in the history of modern America and modern American politics. I've written about a dozen books, including Predicting the Next President, which is now going into its seventh edition. And using my keys to the White House system, I've correctly predicted elections since 1984 correctly. Uh, My book, White Protestant Nation, The Rise of the American Conservative Movement, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in all nonfiction. And my co-authored book with Richard Brightman, FDR and the Jews, won the uh, National Jewish Book Award in American Jewish History. As you mentioned, my most recent books are The Case for Impeachment and then The Embattled Vote in America from the Founder to the Present and just hot off the presses this week, repeal the Second Amendment, the case for a safer America. As you can see, I take on the non-controversial issues. <laughs> no, and you always have. As a matter of fact, I'm, <laughs> I was familiar with you, and that's why I was really excited to be the one to get to do this interview, because way back in 1996, I, I read the keys to the White House uh, and worked on it, too, because you actually also ran uh, for office. And when you did, you were an early user of MySpace and online videos, which overlapped with some of the research that I did. Uh, you didn't mention that in your intro. So I thought I'd point that out about your uh, your attempt. Cool. And uh, so uh, and your and your MySpace use, which was a big deal back in the day. <laughs> yes, it got, I think, a Newsweek and Time magazine article that I was pioneering MySpace. Yes, yes, you really were. Um, so, but I want to, uh, we could talk about that forever, but I'd, lo- I'd love to talk about your book. And I want to start by asking you, you know, this is a very strong argument that you're making right from, I mean, your, your title isn't pulling any punches at all. Uh, so what made you decide, look, it's time to write a book where we're just saying it's time to end the Second Amendment outright. That's a, that's a bold book to write. So what was you what was the uh, reasoning for writing it and what compelled you to take such a strong stance? Great question. <clears throat> I, among other things, I've also been an expert witness in about uh, 100 uh, court cases, mostly civil rights cases. And one justice that I greatly admired was the late John Paul Stevens, kind of one of those who defied expectations, you know, a Republican appointee who often sided with the more liberals on the court, but not always. And he wrote an op-ed in 2018, the New York Times, advocating repeal of the Second Amendment, saying that's the direction that gun control has to go in after these horrific mass shootings. And that inspired me. And as I began looking into the topic, 
being an expert in politics and elections, I realized that the gun control movement in America had hit a dead end. There has been no new federal gun control laws in a quarter of a century. And in fact, the 1994 assault weapons ban was allowed to lapse. The gun control movement was going nowhere, despite overwhelming public support in recent years. And I put my finger not not on the money being spent. Rather, I saw the real problem was the Second Amendment, that the gun lobby was wrapping itself in the Second Amendment. And in this expansive interpretation of the Second Amendment, as if it conferred an absolute right to bear and keep private arms by anybody. Gun lobby doesn't care who gets the guns as long as there are guns and their sponsors in the gun industry continue to pour in money. doesn't matter if they're drug dealers, cartel members, gangbangers, people prone to suicide. makes no difference. And I saw that the gun control movement was trapped, perhaps of their own making. Instead of forthrightly taking on this issue, they instead are playing not to lose, and they've lost. Their mantra is, we support the Second Amendment, but. And of course, that doesn't convince any gun owner, and it's certainly not the kind of thing to inspire a great grassroots movement among advocates of gun control. So I decided, following John Paul Stevens, that the game needed to be changed. And that the only way we get anywhere is by taking on the Second Amendment directly because for over 200 years, we live comfortably with a Second Amendment that did not confer on anyone a private right to keep and bear arms, but rather conferred the need to protect and establish a well-regulated militia. The game needed to be changed. The problem needed to be handled head on. That's interesting because one of the things that I'd like to ask here uh, kind of on the big level is, and then we can kind of maybe get into some more details. In chapter eight, uh, you really, I think, take some of your strongest aim as what you both call in the book and what you've just said here with those who are the the we support the Second Amendment but line. Uh, And and you point out uh, very specifically former President Barack Obama. uh, And that got me to wondering, and I was conflicted as I read through the book, who is the primary audience for the book. Is this a call to actions for liberals to say, look, this, this line of reasoning is a failure. We need to adopt a new line of reasoning. Or based on some other questions I'll have, is this really a, a, a more general audience book where you're trying to convince people of just that, that the Second Amendment was not designed uh, to be about an individual uh, liberty? Or perhaps it's, it's something that I've missed altogether. Yeah. No, no, you, you, you're spot on, Trey. Uh, <clears throat> Obviously, the main audience are those who favor reasonable gun controls. By the way, as you know, nothing, nothing in this book talks about the confiscation of guns. For 200 years plus, when the Second Amendment didn't protect the right to private arms, people's guns were not being confiscated. I'm talking about reasonable gun control measures, universal background checks, permit laws, gun safety laws, red flag laws. In-person in, in permitting. Standards. Yes, in, like they have in lots of states. And by the way, those states are way safer when it comes to gun violence than states 
without such laws. And I present the statistics in my book. So I am at the one level talking to the vast majority of Americans who favor reasonable gun control, but I'm also talking to the movement. You know, where is the grassroots enthusiasm? It's just not there. I'm not saying it's going to be easy to repeal the Second Amendment. Obviously, that's very much of an uphill climb, but the climb itself is worth it to get the game changed and get some inspiration in the gun control movement that's just getting nowhere in the United States, despite such enormous public support. There's no other issue with this. 70, 80 percent public support and nothing happens. Uh, There was a wonderful line that I put in repeal the Second Amendment, the case for a safe for America from the satirical uh, magazine Onion, which says nothing can be done about these mass shootings, says the only nation where they occur regularly. So uh, on that uh, on, on that train, one of the things at the very beginning in the introduction, you basically make a plea to federal liberals saying, look, you, you've told me don't make this case, but I've got to make the case anyway, because this is the only reasonable way forward. And as, as you're saying right now, you don't think that it's going to be an easy way forward, but it's it's the only way forward. But there I felt to be a little bit of a contradiction in that, because as you note in the book and as you've talked about here. Gun control, even inside the context that we have it right now, has not been successful in Congress. So what makes you think what's going to be different by taking the track of appealing the Second Amendment that was not that uh, has so far not been successful, even on smaller chunks of it? Yeah. Let me give you an analogy with uh, the gay marriage movement, which I talk about in the book, you know, 30 years ago, even 20 years ago gay marriage was considered to be inconceivable. And even the gay rights movement shied away from advocacy for gay marriage. That then changed in the 21st century. And the gay rights movement took on gay marriage head on. And the impossible happened. We now have a constitutional right to gay marriage in this country. Who would have ever thought that was possible? And what I'm saying here is, yeah, You know, we might think that's impossible now, but that doesn't mean it's going to be impossible five, ten years from now. I went to Brandeis University, and as the great Justice Brandeis said, and I quote this in Repeal the Second Amendment, you know, some of the most worthwhile things were once thought to be impossible. We know that the current approach is a dead end. We've given it a quarter of a century to prove itself, and it's been an utter Failure. There's certainly no great risk in changing the game. And the only way you're going to move politicians, they're not going to move themselves, as you know, is to get a real, vital, and vibrant grassroots movement going. Now, the skeptical liberal, though, might say, I'm, I totally hear what you're saying uh, about gay marriage. And I thought that was an interesting argument in the book, uh, The Case Against the Second Amendment. But uh, in that case, we are not talking about repealing or even adding uh, a piece to the Constitution. Rather, we were talking about the Supreme Court reinterpreting uh, or interpreting properly, however you want to take that point of view, uh, the Constitution 
So in your case, it seems like you're going a step further. I, I can imagine maybe the, the, the skeptical liberal saying, I think you're, you're making that bar too easy for yourself. Uh, gay marriage was probably easier than and then passing or repealing uh, an amendment. What do you think about that? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think the passion against uh, the broad passion, the vast majority of the American people were against gay marriage when this started. And so, you know, even though it didn't require repealing an amendment or adding to the Constitution, it was really considered impossible. And it wasn't just that they persuaded the courts. Somehow, by this concerted movement and taking it on directly, they persuaded the American people. So yes, we have a steeper climb because we're dealing with a constitutional change. But unlike gay marriage, we are starting with overwhelming public opposition. Here we're starting with overwhelming public support for gun control. And we just got to convince that majority, that this is the way to go. And we have repealed an amendment. We repealed the prohibition amendment. And that's not the only example of fundamental change in the Constitution. As you know, the original Constitution didn't have anyone vote for vice president. The vice president was the second highest vote getter, provided they got a majority in the Electoral College. That was changed. New amendment. Now we have the ticket system. Originally, in the Constitution, the state legislatures picked the president, excuse me, the, the senators. They also picked most electors, but they picked the senators. That was changed by amendment as well to popular votes. So there have been a lot of fundamental changes in the Constitution. It's hard, but it's not as hard as the conventional wisdom might have us believe. I'm glad you start talking here about kind of uh, framers and changes because. I found one of your most compelling chapters to be chapter two when you're laying out the case against the modern interpretation. And, and to be honest, um, you know, this is uh, against I'm more of a, a conservative libertarian. So sure. I, I'm, I'm giving you a, a lot of credit here in that I thought you made a, a very compelling argument um, in chapter two. And so and this is where you're outlying where historically speaking, this is not was not the framers intent, wasn't even on the radar for being an individual right, and that this comes later. Um, but one of the things that kind of kept occurring to me as being the uh, potentially the less sympathetic reader, so had a liberal critique, now a conservative critique, I can imagine the conservative side critiquing you saying, is this the same constitutional uh, uh, interpretation uh, that he would have used for one of his own <laughs> amendments? Uh, and in other words, you start off with originalism here, something I think you probably critique, if I understand you, uh, in other areas. So uh, what do you think about this uh, potential tension uh, or, or a pushback from a conservative saying, well, you're, you're trying to use our <laughs> constitutional interpretation. Uh, what do you think about that for chapter two? Well, I am using <clears throat> originalism because that's the justification for this broad individual right to keep and bear arms. Uh, in the 2010 Heller case that for the first time in our history established that the amendment uh, gave a broad right of private citizens to keep and bear arms, Justice Scalia said he was relying on originalism. I don't think he really was. So to the extent I can critique originalism, it really shoots down 
the fundamental argument of the gun lobby that the framers intended the this amendment to confer a private right to bear and keep arms. And by the way, this has been missed because it's, you know, kind of an against the grain argument. But I think the single absolutely definitive argument that the framers could not possibly have intended this to confer a right to private arms is the fact that who framed the amendment? The slaveholder, James Madison, right? Half of the states were slaveholding states. Even in the North, there was tremendous prejudice against black people. Do you think for a moment that James Madison and the slaveholders and those skeptical of black rights in the North would have voted for an amendment that conferred to black people a private right to keep arms? Of course not. But if it only applied to a well-regulated militia, that keeps arms out of black people because at that time, black people were barred from service in the militia. That didn't happen until the Civil War. I don't see how anyone could find a flaw in that argument. Now, but of course, at the time of the ratification of the Bill of Rights, uh, African-Americans weren't even considered to be individuals in the context that the Second Amendment or any amendment uh, would have applied to them. That's wrong. I got to stop you there. African-Americans could actually vote, were citizens in most states. You're right, slaves, but there were lots of free blacks who had all the citizenship rights of everyone else. And by the way, the amendment refers to the people and free black people were certainly part of the people. If they could vote, how could they not be part of the people? So you're referring there to free African-American or free black people? Of course. Okay. Of course. Of course. So now another section that I really enjoyed in chapter two was when you went through uh, the quotes or maybe so-called quotes uh, from some <laughs> you know, some framers. And I, att- I deeply appreciate this one because I am uh, my area is uh, communication. And I am so tired of the the bumper sticker, the you know, the, the tweet post from whoever. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> we won't go down that yes, road. Yes, I know what you mean. And it, so I, I loved that you went through that and uh, uh, kind of corrected on that. But what I was wondering, though, was I was kind of hoping when you got done there to maybe have addressed some of the more complicated or stickier situations um, with the framers. I was thinking, for instance, when, when I got done with that uh, section of uh, Jane, uh, Thomas Jefferson's uh, famous and often misattributed uh, letter um, to William Stephen Smith, when he's talking about the need for the people to be able to take arms so that the tree of liberty will be refreshed, as he put it, with blood and tyrants and patriots. Now, he yeah. was talking about France, of course. So of I course. love that you took all those down. Uh, but I, I was maybe I was a little disappointed that you didn't attack some of these. So do you do you think that there is a broader argument here that Jefferson in this position and others outside of these specious ones uh, were maybe being a little bit more arms friendly than you portray? Jefferson was an outlier, as, as you know, at the time, and indeed was referring to uh, France. But who framed the Second Amendment? It was the Federalists, not the Jeffersonians who framed it. And as you know, the Federalists were the ultimate law and order guys. The last thing the Federalists wanted 
was the idea that aggrieved individuals should be able to take up guns and rise up against the government. In fact, what did they invoke the Second Amendment for? To put down in the Whiskey Rebellion and in the Freeze Rebellion precisely such aggrieved citizens picking up their muskets to challenge the government. So when you're looking at those who actually framed and voted for the amendment, their position is exactly the opposite of what the gun lobby would have you believe. And I think I talk about that in the book. We'd like to thank today's sponsor, Empower. We can all use more money, so let Empower help you save a bunch of money and make money management the easiest thing you do all day. All you do is just put in your weekly savings target, and then every day Empower studies your income and spending and automatically moves the right amount of money into your savings account where you're going to be less likely to spend it. They've also got budgeting for people who hate budgeting, which is probably everyone just about, with great reports, and they have actionable spending insights, and there are smart savings recommendations that are tailored specifically for you. They can even negotiate on your behalf to lower your bills, which is very cool. Empower also gives you personalized human coaching for any sort of financial questions you might have, and they have high-interest FDIC-insured checking with no minimums. So if you want to save big this year, download Empower. That's E-M-P-O-W-E-R in the App Store or Play Store. I did, and over 650,000 other people have, too. And Politics Guys listeners get $5 when you use offer code POLITICSGUYS and reach your savings goal. Visit empower.me slash politicsguys for more details. Yeah, let's actually move on to the gun lobby because you spend a number of chapters on, and I will say some really well-researched chapters going through the history of the NRA and what you ultimately call uh, the iron triangle of their lobbying. Uh, so I'd like to, would you start by just kind of laying out quickly for listeners your argument about the iron triangle? Yes, uh, I, I refer to Dwight Eisenhower's incredibly famous farewell address from 1961, where he talked about the military industrial complex. And then we have, of course, the well-known iron triangle, right, of the military, the defense contractors, and the members of Congress who benefit from all this. So I'm saying there is also a gun lobby industrial complex, which has its own iron triangle. There are the gun makers who obviously profit from this. There is the gun lobby that's being financed by the gun makers. And then there are the politicians who not only get money from the gun lobby, but use the arguments and claims of the gun lobby to support their own political fortunes. Let's not forget the gun lobby. Everyone thinks the gun lobby is second single issue. It's not. The gun lobby has become a hammer generally of the far right, attacking any Democrat, attacking all liberal, even you know centrist policy proposals, railing against big government. So we now have this new iron triangle, the gun lobby, the gun makers, and the dependent politicians, and it's a very hard thing to break. We've never yet broken the military industrial triangle. So now on that note, one of the things that uh, as a political scientist kind of made me wonder was, 
you give a lot of power, both implicitly and explicitly, uh, to the NRA as an interest group. And most uh, political theorists uh, and practitioners argue that kind of as in Federalist number 10, right, interest, counterbalance interest. And there are some there's there's times where this can be undone. But what do you think makes the NRA so different? Why can't it be combated? And why hasn't it been combated with other interest groups? What makes it what makes the NRA so unique that it seems to defy our expectations of how an interest group operates and how an interest group is limited? That's a great question. And for a long time, the NRA was defied. We got two gun control measures in the 1930s. We got the Gun Control Act of 1968. And then in the very early 90s, we got the Brady Bill on limited background checks and the assault weapons ban. But that was right around the time when the militant gun lobby, particularly the NRA, made this switch that we were now going to wrap ourselves in the Second Amendment. They hadn't done that before. And it is this incredible appeal that it is the Constitution, it is the foundations of American liberty that are behind us. We're not an ordinary interest group. We're not the Chamber of Commerce promoting big business. We're not the AFL-CIO promoting labor. We are in the interests of the liberties and freedom that our framers enshrined for everyone. And that has been what's transformed the NRA from an organization that couldn't stop gun control to an organization, along with other gun lobbies. They're not the only part of the gun lobby. They're the most important to an organization that, as part of the gun lobby, has stymied, stymied a movement with overwhelming public support for a quarter century. So what will it be about your proposal here, then, that is going to fundamentally shift the ability to break this NRA triangle. Uh, So by calling for the appeal, what do you think is going to be different about this now being more specific to the NRA? Uh, In other words, won't they just push back against this the way that you have expertly laid it out they've done in the past? I hope they do. I hope they do. Because this is the national debate that we have to have. We have to have a national debate over the real meaning of the Second Amendment, whether you're an originalist or not. I think, you know, the meaning of the amendment is clear. It's not just what the original framers intended. It's what the whole history of the United States has been until the Heller decision in 2010. You're talking about, in effect, the Second Amendment has nothing to do with the right to keep and bear arms for over 200 years. This is a debate that I think we must have. And one of the purposes of writing repeal the Second Amendment, the case for a safer America, was to give people the information and knowledge and history that they need to win this debate. I would love to go on every talk show in America and take on a representative of the NRA. Announce this on your podcast. Lickman is ready to go on any show in America and debate any spokesperson, the NRA or any other gun group wants to put on. Well, I, and I would like to add that I will happily mediate uh, that dispute. I, I will happily do it right here on this show. I think that would be uh, incredible. Uh, and, and so what, you, what it sounds like here is, is that a big part of this book was to produce 
the ammunition necessary to fuel that national conversation. Yes. It's a great point, Trey. That's why my book is different. There are lots of gun control books, but they don't do this granular history of gun control in America and the Second Amendment, which is necessary to arm. I hate to use that word, but that, you know, that's what Jefferson said. I want to be armed, not with guns, but with facts, right? And that was, of course, misinterpreted to mean, you know, he wanted to be armed with guns. Yes, we want to arm people with facts, not guns. And that's why I wrote the book, so people can say, here is how the amendment was understood at the time and how it's been understood for the great majority of our history. No, no one's guns were confiscated before Heller. Come on. And how many other nations have a comparable Second Amendment? One, as I point out and repeal the Second Amendment, Guatemala. And not only that, you know, as compared to our advanced democracies, our peer nations, other advanced democracies, if you were to believe the NRA and the gun lobby, we should be by far the safest because they all have the tight gun controls that the NRA says make people less safe. Well, as I point out and repeal the Second Amendment, the case for a safer America, as compared to our closest peer nations, the G7 group and Australia, an American is some 20 times. That's not 20 percent. That's 20 times more likely per capita controlling for population to be murdered by a gun than the residents of those other countries. And there are actually more gun suicides in America than gun murders. Gun murders are horrific, 15,000 or so, but there are over 23,000 gun suicides. And again, an American as compared to our residents of peer nations per capita is seven times more likely to die from a gun suicide, but 40 percent less likely to die from suicide by other means. I also point to Japan, which probably has the strictest gun control laws. Big country, about a third the size of the U.S. They had three gun murders in the last reporting year. We had 15,000. I'm glad that you're kind of now getting into the statistics. Because really, it seems to me that your book is laid out in three parts. You have the introduction, which is in many ways both that plea and then that historic original intent analysis. Then it seems like your third part is really a, a history of the NRA and the gun lobby. And then the last. Yeah, th- there's a fourth part. Yeah, there's a fourth part. Well, the third part, at least that I kind of saw, was what we're talking about now, which is the argument against. Uh, do more guns means less crime as the myth, as you yes. put it, especially in chapter 12 and, yes. and, and especially in tra- chapter 12, you and I'm going to say, in my view, rightfully so, um, uh, debunk John Lott um, uh, for a variety of reasons that I think are really apparent to any meaningful scholar. Uh, maybe not so much to the general audience who may or may not be uh, who are who are reading the book. But one of the things I kind of wondered there was, it does seem that you kind of take rightful aim at that kind of research, but that there is some other, maybe more nuanced research, maybe that you didn't tackle as much. So for instance, I'm I'm thinking of the uh, American Political uh, Science Review in 2013 that looked at the spillover gun control effects with the U.S. and Mexico that showed that, well, gun control was part of it, but 
drug use was one of the larger effects in violence rather than the guns, or even more recently in 2016, criminology and criminal justice, when looking at city-level data, uh, violent crime rates weren't as impacted by gun control as many researchers thought. Uh, so what? So is in your argument here, uh, be a little nuanced for our listeners. I, I mean, again, yeah. I think lots easily uh, debunked. Sure. Talk a little but bit more about because he's the yes. primary spokesperson. No, you know the general. You know, if I was writing this book for Harvard University Press, I'd probably get dig into all of that stuff. And of course, I can answer it. But quite frankly, that's getting almost what I even have in here is pretty granular. That that's getting way too much in the weeds. But uh, what's your, what, what's your question? Well, effectively, our listeners are prob- are usually a little more interested in the detail. <laughs> and yeah. so I would go ahead and be a little it. more wonky it. here, yeah. I guess, is what I'm asking yeah. and, and, and I, I talk about this. That. Yeah, I do address that. And I say, first of all, of course, guns are not the only cause of violence. I, I know I never say that, but I say they are a major. And, you know, one of the big controls is to compare the U.S. with peer nations. And I do that also. Again, I'm more you know, directed against the arguments people hear all the time from the gun lobby, because this is not, you know, as I said, uh, a book meant for the APSR audience. particularly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, the control is. You know, we hear from the gun lobby, oh, it's video games, it's mental health, you know, it's poverty. Well, all these other nations have video games. They have mental health problems. They have poverty. The critical difference is gun control. I also do a controlled analysis comparing the gun control states, the the tightest ones with the least tight, controlling for, you know, all these other factors, you know, urbanism, education, race, et cetera. And there is a big difference. Third, I also look at not surveys which I think are very, as you know, when you're dealing with something this sensitive. Self-reported is always problematic. Yeah, but especially in this area, Mm -hmm. you know, it's much more problematic than, you know, who do you like for president, quite frankly. (laughs) You're you're dealing with life and death here. Uh, And as you point out, there is reason, uh, in the same way as if you were to ask somebody, how much have you read in the the past month, a reason to overestimate the amount you've read. Unlike who, who you're asking for for president, very, very different kinds of self-reported yes. questions. You know, you're asking, do you stood up for self-defense? Oh, yeah. You know, but at any rate, my point is in a lot of to debunk, I only take the surveys on and we're not, we don't need to get into the minutiae of that. But I also look at what I think is much more telling. And that is actual police records, actual records of crime and what you find in study after study after study is by huge margins, guns are vastly more likely to be used in crime than to be used in self-defense by huge margins when you actually look at real data. The other thing that I didn't even know existed, but I thought was kind of interesting, if not the most definitive point, was I didn't know this. They have these insurance policies that the NRA and other companies sell. So if you use your gun in self-defense and, you know, that's always problematic, you can call on this insurance policy and they'll help you out, you know, if you have any difficulty. Well, it turns out, you know, anyone who buys that is certainly A, going to be a gun owner, 
which knocks out 60 percent of Americans off the bat. And B is someone who thinks they might use the gun and they never use this. No one ever invokes this policy. You know, it's less than one percent. Well, under uh, in New York. And I think it was Washington state. No one invoked this. So if there's all of this, you know, millions of people using guns for self-defense, how come when real dollars are involved, it comes out close to zero? I thought that was kind of interesting. Oh, you know, I really I did not know that that existed at all. I, I, I didn't either. I, I highlighted that in the book because I thought I had no idea. Uh, and that is interesting that, uh, you know, no one has ever employed it. Um, because, again, e- I would yeah. have even thought that somebody would have used it even for for some kind of specious reason, but would yeah, have would have exactly. would have done it. But uh, no, it's I, astounding. That, yeah. Later in the book, in chapter 13, and it's something that you mentioned earlier in the interview as well, um, you point to the possibility of repeating, uh, repealing the Second Amendment, kind of like undoing prohibition. And I'll be honest, that actually kind of shocked me as an analogy. I didn't think you'd go that direction, because in many ways it seemed like the analogy would go the other way, although that you point to that. So kind of make the case here, how do you think the Second Amendment fits into repealing prohibition? Because again, it kind of feels like it would, it would flow the other direction. I know. And I address that. I say, well, you know, on the one hand, prohibition's prohibiting something. On the other hand, the Second Amendment seems to be permitting something. But that's superficial, because in both cases, the amendments have proved counterproductive. Instead of making America safer, which was also promised by the prohibition lobby, just like the gun lobby promises, you know, an expansive version of the Second Amendment make you safer. Instead of making us safer, both of these amendments prove to be counterproductive productive, counter to the claims. They both demonstrably have made, you know, back then and today made America less safe. I don't need to go into all the negative consequences of prohibition and starting organized crime and gang violence in this country. So that, I think, is the critical point, even though superficially they may seem to be different. The other critical point is just as the conventional wisdom today is you'll never repeal the Second Amendment. You know, I have some quotes in there in the case in repeal the Second Amendment, the case for a safer America. I have quotes from the geniuses at the time saying, oh, there's no chance we'll ever repeal the Prohibition Amendment. The other, there are other interesting parallels, too. Uh, one of the critical things, I think I mentioned this before, was uh, one of the most prominent Rockefeller, teetotaler, prohibition, turning around. You know, if we could get some prominent people who were involved in the NRA and, you know, are pretty disillusioned with it, to turn around, that could jumpstart the movement just as it helped jumpstart uh, the movement to repeal prohibition. But I think I am the first one to really make this argument, at least more than just in passing. I have a whole chapter on it. It repealed the Second Amendment. In the last section of your book, you get into, and, and this is where you feel like maybe you're being the most targeted towards the largest audience and maybe the least sympathetic, where you're laying out what would reasonable uh, controls look like? And, and you lay out a number of policies. You listed some of them uh, earlier. And in part, it kind of seemed like, look, we're, I'm not I'm not coming for your guns and nobody's coming for your guns, per se. But we can we can have a reasonable policy on this. And so you have a number of them there. But I was curious if if you can right now enact one of them, 
What do you think, which one of those, if, if you could get that through Congress, you knew you had the votes for it, which, which one of those do you think would be the best, the most effective, the one that you would pick? Uh, it's very easy. Permits. Permits are the most effective way of keeping guns in the hands of what the NRA always talks about, law-abiding citizens, even though they don't care who gets the guns. They don't limit it to law-abiding citizens. And of all, you know, in my study of comparing states, the single best predictor in reducing gun violence is permit laws. So permitting would be, would be what you see as being the bullet there? Yes. Okay. I don't want to use that term. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that, yeah, well <laughs> I wasn't thinking about that as that came out of my mouth. I'm going to be honest. I'm sure you are. <laughs> well, uh, we'll, we'll say that's the crux of your argument there. Uh, uh, so if you could make an appeal, because we, we have a lot of listeners who, I mean, they, they go way out to the left and way out to the right. So make your best appeal to those, I think you already have on the left, for those on the right. Uh, why should they revisit this? If you, uh, just kind of sum your case up for them. Yes, this is not a left-right, conservative, liberal issue. It has nothing whatsoever to do with that. You know, the NRA rails against big government, but the NRA has been one of the greatest recipients of big government through its free and loaner rifle and, and ammunition program. Nothing to do with left and right. It has to do with safety. I don't care what side of the spectrum you are. You have to be appalled by the fact that we have virtually a mass shooting every single day in America. Last year, in the Dayton massacre, a gunman in 36 seconds, 36 seconds, killed nine people and wounded 17. That's more then are about the same as people who are murdered by gunfire in an entire year in the country of Denmark. We are not talking about ideology. We are talking about safety. There is nothing liberal or conservative about making sure that people don't have in their hands weapons of war, like the one used in Dayton, that have no purpose other than to kill as many people as rapidly as possible. All of the common sense reforms that I talk about have overwhelming public support, left and right. None of them, none of them involves confiscation of guns or keeping people from having guns for self-defense or hunting or sports shooting. You know, New York State, which has very strict permit laws, has one of the lower crime gun murder rates. So we're talking safety here and nothing else. We're talking about bringing America in line with the rest of the democratic world, left and right. Only Guatemala has a comparable provision in its constitution. So I think this is an issue on which people on every side Every element of the political spectrum can join hands. And for conservatives, if you're talking about being faithful to the intent of the framers and our constitutional system, then it was quite clear, as we have discussed, that the framers never intended the Second Amendment to mean the way the gun lobby has distorted it to this unlimited 
right to keep and bear arms for almost everyone. We should not tolerate living in a country where an American is 20 times more likely to be murdered by a gun than other residents of our peer democracies. Well, Dr. Lickman, I want to say thank you so much for being on the show, but I also want to tell you that I really appreciated the book, and I want to let listeners know that uh, uh, you, you actually, I think, in many ways have persuaded me on a number of issues that I didn't think I could be pushed on. Um, wow. And so from one academic to another, I just wanted to say I, I was impressed with the book, uh, and I, I hope others will, even if they disagree, will read it, because I think it is something that at the minimum needs to be responded to. Uh, and so I, I wanted to let you know that here as we, uh, as we finish up the interview. And so I just want to encourage listeners uh, that they, if you're interested, it is Alec Lichtman's, uh, Alan Lichtman's uh, Repeal the Second Amendment, the Case for a Safer America, which comes out, I believe, on... Uh, it's out. It's out it's right out. now. That's came right. It came out on the 28th. It came out yesterday. It? Yes. Yeah. So it is out uh, as of the 28th. Uh, anywhere you can buy books. Thank you so much for coming on the this show. This great. One final word. Please do, yes. Anytime you want to host a debate between myself and anyone from the gun lobby, just give me a buzz. Well, you know what? I think we'll be we'll be reaching out and seeing if we can, because I would love, I would love to do that. And uh, and I'll see if I can. Thank you so much. My friend. You're welcome. Take care. You have a wonderful day. You too. Bye bye. That was Dr. Alan Lickman. Thank you so much for joining us on The Politics Guys. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Politics Guy, an interview Wednesday edition. I just wanted to let listeners know that if you've got a question, comment, or correction about today's show, please share it with us by reaching out at mail at politicsguys.com or on our Facebook page where you can message us throughout the week. If you enjoyed the show, please think about subscribing to it on your favorite podcast app. That kind of sharing and listening is greatly appreciated. So is leaving reviews, and that is what helps us the most. The executive producers of Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Morano, Andra Masker, and Daniel Toe. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us then.